And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Matt Johnson. I'm an independent writer, and my recent article, What Christopher Hitchens Knew, was published in Persuasion at the end of January. The article is based on my upcoming book, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. Hitchens was, for many years, considered one of the most ferocious and eloquent left-wing polemicists in the world. But on much of today's left, he's remembered as a defector, and a warmonger, and even an imperialist. This is because he supported the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But as I argue in the article and the book, this narrative gets Hitchens exactly wrong, because he supported those wars for liberal reasons. He was an internationalist. He believed that the United States had the power to defend universal human rights abroad. And Hitchens had a few other principles that I think bear re-examination today. He was a First Amendment absolutist. He believed in free expression for everybody in just about every conceivable circumstance. He was opposed to identity politics and other forms of tribalism that seek to divide people on the basis of race or nation or religion. And he expressed these principles more articulately than just about anyone alive today or alive then. So if you would like to take a look at my article about Hitchens and his enduring relevance and why principles matter more than politics, head on over to Persuasion and check out the article. Thanks. Matt Johnson's piece called What Christopher Hitchens Knew was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Rachel Kleinfeld. Rachel is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and one of the most interesting writers about democracy and violence in the United States and around the world. We try to take stock of this moment in American democracy, understanding just how threatened it is or isn't, what kind of strategies for shoring up American democracy work, and what strategies don't work, what strategies actually end up wasting effort and resources. And finally, why Rachel is very worried about the prospect and the reality of political violence in the United States, but is not believed that America is in danger of anything that could reasonably be called a civil war. Rachel Kleinfeld, welcome to the podcast. Thrilled to be here, Yasha. You have thought a lot and in a very sophisticated way about the threats to US democracy and the things that we can do to help shore it up. What is your assessment at this point about just how threatened US democracy is? I'm a little bit torn because... We obviously see the threat of authoritarian populists around the world. We're seeing in many countries that that can subvert longstanding, sophisticated democracies. It is clear that the Republican Party continues, at least to a very considerable extent, perhaps to a very large extent, to be under the control of election deniers, of the MAGA movement, of Donald Trump himself. But at the same time, the midterms did seem to be relatively good news. That seemed to show that a lot of Americans reject that kind of extremism, reject election deniers. A lot of swing voters voted against the most extreme Republican candidates. So you know, as we're slowly 
ramping up for the 2024 election season and trying to think through sort of what these last six years have meant. How do you weigh these different factors up? Sure. Well, I mean, I think what the election showed was that with a gigantic amount of work on behalf of many, many organizations, you could move a tiny percentage of independent right-leaning swing voters away from election denialism and real authoritarianism in swing states. That mattered. It mattered a lot because it means that the 2024 election will be free and fair. But what it didn't do was really fundamentally shift the dynamics in the Republican Party, where while Trump might be losing steam, Trumpism, the idea of this kind of Christian nationalism, othering people in order to build your base, using wink and a nod authoritarianism is still alive and well. We're seeing DeSantis do it. We're seeing other attempted front runners do it. We still saw the majority of election deniers win. They won in deep red states. We have about 16 states now where there's trifectas and triplexes with a lot of election deniers in power. So this is a state in which the governor, the attorney general, both chambers of the legislature are all of one party and usually the secretary of state. And so basically all of your major executive roles that would control elections plus your legislature are all of a single party. And in about 15, maybe 16 states, those are all Republican and a number of election deniers were elected to those positions. So, you know, it's worth remembering that the Jim Crow South was only 11 states, really, in its full form of election suppression against African-Americans and poor whites. And so it doesn't take the entire United States to have a significant setback in some portion of the United States to have an authoritarian enclave somewhere. And I think the role of the RNC in Arizona was notable. Arizona is really the only place we saw any kind of election violence with the supervisor of Maricopa County elections going into hiding. And an RNC phone call seems to suggest that the Republican National Committee was possibly threatening, possibly just saying it could happen, that the mob would be released if certain things didn't happen. So this institutionalization of the use of threats and intimidation against their own side is an important part of the story. Usually we think of the story of American democracy as Democrats versus Republicans, but there's this fight within the Republican Party, and an awful lot of violence and intimidation happened during the primary campaign, not the main election. And it bounced out people like Liz Cheney, who couldn't even campaign in her state because of the level of threat against her, but also a lot of the people who voted to impeach Trump and so on. So we passed a milestone that was valuable. We passed it with a huge amount of work, a lot of persuasive effort, and we barely passed it. So I'm worried. But I actually would say the thing I'm most worried about is that we don't have a future story for our democracy that's anything better than let's get through this by the skin of our teeth. And we really don't have a sense of what does our democracy look like if we're going to be, you know, as you've written in your book, a multi-ethnic, inclusive nation where classes come together, races come together. What is our story for the future? That we don't have. And so we're just fighting kind of one battle to the next. I think a lot of this question depends on what we imagine the future after Trump to be. Now, you know, Trump, I think, remains the favorite to win the 2024 presidential elections. But sooner or later, the Trump era is going to come to an end just because he's not a young man. I guess there's two ways of interpreting the way in which he's been able to take over the Republican Party. The first is that he has always just been the face of the real it of a Republican Party that even for most Republican voters may not like that it or may not completely identify with that it. There is you know, 10 or 15% of the American population 
who really are there ideologically, who really have been there emotionally, and that he was just able to channel that and thereby has created a mold which is going to be exploited by somebody at any point. And, you know, once Donald Trump steps down, perhaps there's going to be a fight over who owns that lane and that might allow some moderates to squeak through, or perhaps somebody will emerge who actually is more effective and more disciplined than Trump, and that might be even more dangerous. But one way or the other, that's just what the Republican Party is going to remain. I guess there's a sort of more hopeful reading, and I really don't know whether that's at all realistic, which says that actually just the head of a Republican Party has a lot of influence over its shape. And so the Republican Party looked very different under Reagan in the 80s than did under W in the 2000s and looks very different still under Donald Trump. And whoever sort of manages to squeak through a Republican nomination process whose name is not Donald Trump and whoever then manages to win an election is just going to have a lot of agency in reshaping the nature of a future Republican Party. And that perhaps is a more hopeful story. Which of these stories do you think is more likely? Do you think we just have enough Americans who are MAGA-inclined and who hold a lot of sway in Republican primary elections that, you know, for the next 10, 20 years at least, we're going to have one effectively anti-democratic political party in the United States? Or do you think that the Republican Party might change nature, might shapeshift faster than we now imagine? I'm going to reject your binary, Yasha, and open up door number three and four here. So, First of all, I don't think that this has always been the id of the Republican Party. I think this has always been the id of a certain percentage of voters who used to be split between the parties, honestly. And what we saw in 2016 was a move of a significant number of swing voters and some Democrats into the Republican Party, and they had a particular valence. These were people who believed that only Christians were the true Americans, who kind of held these nativist views and so on. But they used to be Democrats because they were economically liberal. And now the Republican Party has about 30 percent of its voting base that believes in economic redistribution, doesn't believe in the low tax. That's a hard thing for a party to deal with because they agree on some social and cultural issues, but they don't agree on this core economic issue. And so they have to find some other way to cobble themselves together. But they haven't always been Republican. I think Democrats have to grapple with that reality. They have always been a part of America. And by the way, just to step back here for a second for listeners, I mean, I think this is sort of one of the weird outcomes of the American two-party system and the effective electoral system, which pushes towards two parties, right? Because in every political system, you're going to have some cross-pressured voters. And so there's many dimensions of politics, you know, there's six or seven different areas. You're never going to find a political party which agrees with you exactly on your stance in those six or seven areas. So you're always going to have to give something up for something else. But when you have a two-party system, that pressure is just particularly strong. And when you think of two of the primary dimensions of politics as being economic on the one side and social and cultural on the other side, there's just going to be people in four quadrants, right? There's going to be people who are socially liberal and economically left-wing, pro-redistribution. There's going to be people who are socially liberal and economically more conservative, pro-free markets for less redistribution. And then the same with people who are socially conservative, right, falling to the two different camps. And so in a way, what you're describing, I think, is that it used to be the case that what decides mostly who you vote for is economic. So the parties were sort of economically relatively homogeneous, right? If you're for redistribution, you were a Democrat. If you're for less redistribution, more free markets, you were a Republican. And then they had these sort of socially mixed coalitions. But as the social and the cultural dimension has become dominant in American politics, you've now ended up with having to sort of bridge these economic divides within them. So in a way, that's true of a Democratic Party as well, right? I mean, all of Wall Street used to be 
not all of Wall Street, but most of Wall Street used to be Republican, even though it was you know, located in New York City, which is generally a very liberal place. And now most of Wall Street has become Democrat. But as a result, you know, Democrats now have to have these internal tensions between trade unions and Wall Street financiers in a way that wouldn't quite have been true 15 or 20 years ago. So I feel like I went off on a tangent there, but hopefully... No, no, it's interesting. I wouldn't say most of... I think Wall Street is actually falling in the realignment right now because the shareholders and the board membership is even more strongly Republican now than it used to be. It's now, I think, 70% of the board members of publicly traded companies are now Republican. That's one of the greater shares since they've been counting. But the values of those companies are values that are more supported by the public of the Democratic Party, and they're being hit hard by Republicans in this populist realignment. But what I was going to say is, what's the Republican way forward? I think they've got a couple of options. One, they double down on Trumpism and on social and cultural issues because that's the way to hold this base that doesn't believe in economic sort of classist issues to be held together with the rest of the more traditional Republican Party. That's one option, and we're seeing them kind of play with that. Another option would be the kind of post-Mitt Romney autopsy. Let's go very much the other direction and court kind of aspirational business class immigrants and so on who want to be part of uh, aspirational growing economy. So I think the best news in this election, actually, is that the Hispanic vote for Trump increased by over a third from 2016 to 22. The black male vote doubled. The Asian vote grew. So if that keeps happening, well, it's not good for progressives like myself who assume that all of these ethnic groups will end up in their side. It is good for a multi-ethnic democracy because it would force the Republican Party to start catering to these other groups and recognizing that they can't other their way, that they'd be as diverse a coalition as the Democrats, as it were, and they would have to find another way to hold their coalition together. So that could be really hopeful if they decide that, no, actually, we could compete for the Hispanic vote. It's a huge vote. We saw how to do it in Florida. We can do it in Texas. Now let's try to do it in Arizona and so on. That'd be great for our democracy. It'd be a very different kind of Republican party. Another way forward would be for ranked choice voting and open primaries to start spreading in more places so that, you know, what Nevada just voted on and Maine and Alaska, they've all voted for different flavors of somehow allowing multiple candidates from the same party to run against each other without having to go through a primary that picks just one first. And so while America has a two-party system, and it's very hard to get on the ballot if you're not part of those two parties, which is the real bottleneck, these kinds of systems get around that a little bit by allowing multiple flavors of Republican to run against each other, libertarians, Green Party candidates, working family party that lean to the left, so that what you end up with in the end is a sense of, you know, are you a conservative voter because you care about economics? Are you a conservative voter because you care about national security or because you care about social and cultural issues? Or are you a progressive because you're big into ethnic and racial identity issues? Or are you progressive because you want more redistribution economically? And as we get more flavors, we can actually see who would win. And we might have different people winning, of course, at the state level and at the congressional level. But for a presidential, I think it would sort the electorate in much more honest ways that I think would limit the sort of Trumpist vote to probably around 30, 35 percent, which seems to be a pretty core base and allow others to come forward. And then, you know, you're playing with the dynamics of the horse race. Do you get two moderates who knock each other out? Well, the way in which ranked choice voting counts first votes and then second votes makes it less likely that that kind of problem would happen. 
And just to give a little bit more context here for people who are less in the weeds about these electoral reforms, again, they're sort of slightly different in each state. Basically, a lot of them are what's called final four, final five voting, I understand. And so the idea is that you have a first primary in which everybody can run. And then the top four, five finishers qualify for the second round runoff. And then in that second round runoff, you have ranked choice voting. So you can indicate your first preference, your second preference, your third preference within that more limited number of candidates. And the idea is that if you're in a deep red place, usually the only thing that a Republican candidate would really worry about is the primary, right? The likelihood of you losing the general election is really low. And so you have this incentive to cater for the 10, 15% of a population that is most politically motivated, most extreme, most radical, and to ignore the preferences of everybody else. That's a lot of how Trump managed to get hold of a congressional delegation. The same, obviously, is true in a deep blue place like California, right? The main concern is how to win the primaries, how to get through the primaries, and therefore it might be tempting to ignore the preferences of moderate voters. Now, what you do by having these four or five people run in the general election is that suddenly people can rank the preference between a more moderate Democrat and a more progressive Democrat, or on the Republican side, between a more extreme mugger candidate and perhaps a more sort of traditional country club Republican. And what we saw in Alaska and a number of places is that that does seem to have elected these more moderate candidates and created this kind of lane for politicians in Alaska, for example, to get elected with some significant Republican support, but also some significant support from independents and Democrats. And so it allows a kind of more moderate type of politics. Is that ever going to be any fix for the presidential primaries, though? I mean, this feels like a fix for these congressional races, for Senate races. Is there a path of institutional reform that allows a similar mechanism to work for a presidential election, or is that only ever going to be a fix for Congress? So I can't see right now how it would work for a presidential, although I think that there could be more creative minds than mine. That's why I think we really need more creative thinking about what the democracy of the future looks like. You know, our founding fathers famously never planned a party system. The fact that we then ended up with only two parties is really a historical accident. There's just no reason to be stuck in the system that we're stuck in, except for path dependence. And so one could imagine that it could be different, but um, I'm not quite sure how to get from here to there at the presidential level. However, presidential level politics are shaped by the sort of zeitgeist. And if the zeitgeist changes because suddenly you can't get these Trumpy people through general elections, as has just happened for two election cycles, of course, um, but starts happening at a state level and so on, then you have a uh, different pool of people within the base, within the party, a different sense of who your ads are catering to. And I think that would percolate up to the presidential level more through a normative manner than in a strict electoral manner. I want to go back to this very interesting point you were making about there's in some ways a demographic choice that Republicans can and have to make. I have to say that here I'm sort of a little skeptical of, of what's become a conventional wisdom that Republicans are the sort of party of minority rule and they're going to do whatever they can to allow the sort of white minority to persist. It's not clear to me that the numbers bear that out. They, they did actually do reasonably well in the midterm elections, and they were able to win in states like Florida, which are very close to being majority non-white. And they did so by making huge improvements in the virtue among particularly Latinos, but also over the course of the last five or six years, among some other non-white voter groups. So it seems to me the Republicans have fully embraced that post-Romney defeat autopsy in 2012, where the Republican Party said, we got to figure out how to appeal to Latinos, we got to figure out how to broaden our demographic base. What concerns me is that they've done it in a slightly different way 
from what that autopsy report had suggested. At the time, it was assumed, and this is a sort of strange assumption that Democrats and Republicans share in America, that, you know, white equals conservative and non-white equals, you know, more liberal. And that if Republicans want to be able to reach Latino voters and other non-white voters, they're going to do that by, you know, sounding a little bit more like the New York Times editorial board. And what Republicans seem to have succeeded in doing in a very interesting way over the last 10 years is to increase the vote share among Latinos and some other non-white group by being more sort of working class pugilist, at least in the cultural stuff, and perhaps to some very small extent that might develop further in future on uh, with a little bit of a realignment on economic issues, becoming more open to an increase in the minimum wage and things like that. So I guess for me, the question is, what would that demographically diverse Republican coalition look like? And it seems to me that you know, a Republican may well win, not a minority of a vote, but a very clear majority of a vote and a quite dominant victory in the Electoral College if they basically adopted a sort of center-right cultural stance, which very clearly rejects a lot of the unpopular parts of progressive orthodoxy in the American mainstream without being bigoted, without being racist, without pushing away minority voters. And then they adopted a more center or center-left economic policy, being pro-business, being pro-markets, but also being for a higher minimum wage, also being for more, more worker protections, making sure that ordinary people actually get something from the gain in wealth. The question is, to me, those policies, which would win you likely a majority if you are a reasonably charismatic, smart Republican who knows how to run this playbook, are conformable both with respect for democratic institutions and a rejection of election denialism and a rejection of most extreme elements of the market crowd, or with an institutionally destructive politics, which runs a kind of rhetorically populist playbook saying, I alone represent the people and anybody who disagrees with me is illegitimate. And I'm going to run this kind of policy agenda to power and then actually start dismantling institutions. And I don't know how to predict which of these two is more likely, or that just depends on the choice that that particular candidate would then make. So perhaps you can help me think through this. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is where the person makes a big difference, you know, whether you have someone with some authoritarian instincts or willingness to go there versus not. I mean, you're right. There's a very clear path for Republicans. Latinos and African-Americans are both more religious than the traditional progressives. Latinos are also more Protestant increasingly. And that Protestantism has been really influenced by right-wing Protestantism from America that pushed it overseas in other countries. And now it's coming back to us and they tend to be much more right-wing African-Americans. Now one in 10 African-Americans are immigrants. They're not products of the historical experience of African-Americans as many Americans tend to think of it. They have aspirational values. And when they look at American democracy, they think, well, maybe it's not perfect, but it's better than you know other countries I've worked in like Nigeria. So don't tell me that this is a, a false democracy. It's, we're not seeing that kind of violence and so on. A lot of them are small business owners. Immigrants are small business owners disproportionately. And so the COVID rules really hurt small businesses. And Democrats have never really dealt with how the COVID protectionism, which was valid, but nevertheless had costs. And it had real costs, particularly if you were a more gray economy business that couldn't access the government loans. And then minorities are disproportionately working class. And that brings with it some traditional values about risk aversion and so on, also some traditional gender values. 
And so you can see a real way forward. And as you say, there is no reason that that's pro-democracy. It could be pro-inclusivity and anti-democracy. And I think big D Democrats need to recognize that these things might not go together. And if they're going to support democracy, they really need to stop making so many assumptions. The way forward to support democracy is about democracy. Inclusivity is separate, important, but not the same. And if you're a Democrat who wants to win these groups, you need to rethink how you're trying to woo them and not just assume them. But if you're a small D Democrat who's trying to pull the country together, we need to really look at how easy it might be to create a multi-ethnic coalition that is nevertheless anti-democratic. I want to highlight one little thing that you said, which is, you know, I think there's a very important political and certain ways cultural divide between what one activist groups called American descendants of slaves and of slavery on the one side and African immigrants and their descendants on the other side. So people who've been in the country mostly for centuries, brought to the country in chains against the will, shaped by the terrible experience of chattel slavery on the one side. And people who often have, not always, but often have a profile, which is much more similar to Indian Americans or perhaps Chinese Americans, who often came here on H-1B visas, who come often from elite backgrounds within their countries and their children, their grandchildren. And those are just two very, very different groups. And it's striking to me how little of a conversation we've had in America about that divide and about the kind of political implications that might have, but more importantly, just the way it shapes the culture. I mean, one of the sort of stranger things that I always wonder about when we talk about something like equity, which out of read on this podcast called, you know, racist proletarianism, the ideology that what really matters is the sort of disparity on average between the average wage or perhaps the average net worth of different demographic groups is that I think there's a quite plausible scenario in which we're going to make great progress towards equity in the coming decades. But it'll be sort of strange progress. I think American descendants of slavery are actually improving the socioeconomic standing. There's some very real progress there, even though it isn't perfect. But the descendants of immigrants from Africa are doing extremely well. The average Nigerian-American, Kenyan-American makes more than $100,000 a year. And it's very imaginable that in 50 years, we will effectively have closed those racial disparities it will just be because the average, especially as there's more immigration from very rapidly growing African countries who also have a very rapidly growing middle class as more H-1B immigration and more family-sponsored visas that originally come from H-1B immigration come from Nigeria and Kenya rather than India and China, right? You could imagine actually really closing those racial gaps, but in a way that still means that you have a very disproportionate number of people who suffered the worst injustices in American history living under very challenging circumstances on the south side of Chicago and Baltimore and some of the most deprived communities in the country. And then on the other side, you might have this very thriving up and upper middle class of successful immigrants and their descendants in the way that's also true of descendants of Indian immigration, Chinese immigration. And I just think that's sort of one of the many ways in which the way we think and talk about these issues is a little simpler than the reality that's going on on the ground. You're absolutely right. And I've written on that five strategies to support U.S. democracy paper about the need for thick identities and for making identities less thin. And this is exactly what I mean. I mean, an African-American immigrant from Nigeria who's come over here on an H-1B and is earning 150000 a year 
is a thick identity and that they have many identities as an immigrant, as a woman, as an entrepreneur, what have you. They can pick from those identities and they can pick what their political profile is going to be from those identities. And by narrowing them just to race or just to their phenotype and not to what's in their head or what's in their aspirational soul means that both parties do them a disservice. And I think the future of democracy is really going to be finding some way to allow thicker identities to come to the surface so that we're not picking and choosing from among, frankly, some of the worst angels by tribalizing ourselves in these very thin ways. We do a disservice to our full humanity. And I think that the democracy conversation right now often does that by narrowing our identities into what you can see and making that the most salient when that is not necessarily what's most salient to the holder of that identity. And that the complexity of our storyline as a country also needs to become salient to the conversation. You need to know where America's come from. But as I said at the beginning, we need to know where we're going. And I don't think we know that right now. I don't think we have a strong sense among the pro-democracy community. What do we want to see? And how do we get there based on the realities of these demographics and these changes that our country is going through? Yeah, I want to read for a moment a quote from an article I came across recently, which I think is really powerful by Mo Mitchell, the African-American head of the Working Families Party, a longtime organizer for the Movement for Black Lives, who talks about the simplistic way in which identities are sometimes treated in progressive spaces very interestingly. He says, you may hear someone argue, as a working class, first generation American, Southern woman, I say we have to vote no on this particular issue. What's implied is that one's identity is a comprehensive validator of one's political strategy, that identity is evidence of some intrinsic ideological or strategic legitimacy. Marginalized identity is deployed as a conveyor of a strategic truth that must simply be accepted. And he says, of course, personal identity and individual experience are important. There's something to this. But what we're now often doing is genuflecting to individuals solely based on the socialized identities or personal stories. And that, he worries, deprives them of the conditions that sharpen arguments, develop skills, and win debates. We infantilize members of historically marginalized or oppressed groups when we stereotype in these kinds of ways. That's a very interesting intervention from somebody who has a lot of standing within those progressive spaces. And I think it's an indication that some people within this movement are really starting to recognize not just how wrong-headed these assumptions are, but how hard they make it to actually win political debates, how hard they make it to actually understand what's going on in American reality today. Richard, I want to ask you a little bit about what to do about all of that. I feel like we've been spending a good amount of time here on analysis, and anybody can analyze, and you can analyze with the best of them, but you can also suggest solutions. And so you have a really interesting paper that you published recently where you talk about what civil society actors, individuals, organizations, politicians can do to help save American democracy, but also something that I want to start with, which is what doesn't work, or at least what isn't enough, because you make an interesting argument that a lot of the stuff that people in that space do, a lot of the charitable dollars that are spent on supposedly saving American democracy are channeled into areas which you know, maybe fine insofar as they go, but which really miss the mark in terms of making as much of a difference as they should. Sure. So, you know, I argue that some things are insufficient. I'm not saying that they're wrong. And they're mostly about helping Democrats win or helping Democrats win through other language, like increasing voter turnout, which we hope will help, you know, Democrats win or get more minorities to vote because we think they'll all vote for Democrats. And I'm a Democrat and I believe that it is very important right now because the Republican Party is kind of enthralled to this anti-democratic force 
Democrats do need to win. But what we've seen in the last two elections, but especially the 2020 election, was that Democrats won the presidency. They won both houses of Congress. And at the state level, the anti-democratic rot really grew quite a bit. And the normative disintegration really grew. The laws against protest, the laws allowing, you know, cars to drive into protesters, for instance, and, and so on, really uh, very visceral things were happening at the state level. We're a federal country. And about half our states are so deep red that you're just not going to get a Democrat winning those states. So even if you do increase all of these pro-democratic, big D democratic forces and win at the national level, you still have these states that are quite red and they're going to continue to exist. And a lot of important policy is made at the state level, not least criminal policy and what activities are criminalizable. Only a few things are at the federal level more now, but they can't prosecute everything. So it's really insufficient. And what I argue is we might still need to do this, as we saw in the last midterms, but you're not going to change democracy. And to change democracy and make it better in America, there's a set of institutional strategies we need to think about. And I'd lay them out and, you know, things like ranked choice voting that we've talked about are really final four, final five, things like increasing the ability to hold people to account who use political violence, you know, various things that kind of make sense. But there's also a whole set of social activities and societal activities that are getting really short shrift. And so I try to talk about the social demand from the right for illiberal policies and where that's coming from, issues of masculinity that I think are really important to grapple with and issues of rural areas being left behind. Our constitution gives rural areas immense power, but we've just decimated their economies. We've told them they're flyover states. We've belittled them. You know, what do you expect to happen except some form of backlash? I know it's happening globally, but in America, the constitutional power given to those areas is really extreme. So talk about the societal issues on the right. And then I try to talk about some of the societal issues on the left as well, particularly this idea that we keep asking people to turn out while democracy is really not doing a whole lot for them because they're being taken for granted and because the ideological arguments are kind of missing the mark from what they need. So that's great as a kind of overview, but I guess I would like to get a little bit more meat on the bones of this. So perhaps you know, taking one of these areas, if somebody who's listening is the head of a foundation that can give real money to fund something, or if somebody is you know, an ambitious 21, 22-year-old who's just graduated college and who wants to say, I want to start one of those organizations and I want to put together a real concept for doing something that people aren't doing at the moment in an effective way. Where do you see the gap? Where do you see the area in which organizational capacity is lacking, money is lacking, action is lacking, and people could make a difference? There are so many gaps. I will pick out one or two. You know, so take economic redistribution. The left tends to say, oh, you know, the problems with our democracy are that people are being left behind and the high inequality and so on. First of all, none of the research bears that out. None of the research points to economic issues as being behind what's going on in our democracy or in other democracies, frankly. Uh, the only research suggests that when a rising tide is happening and some boats aren't rising as fast as others, they might turn to nativist parties, which is really hard from a policy perspective. But anyway, we also know that simple redistribution programs tend to meet a lot of backlash from the working class who feel like they're going to be paying for other people and they don't like that. There's a racial component to that. There's a sense that giveaways don't fulfill a kind of need that men particularly have to own something. And there's all sorts of good survey research on how men react to this economic redistribution. So, you know, on the one hand, there's people who are saying, let's do redistribution. On the other hand, all the research is saying, actually, that will not solve our democracy problems. And yet, 
We have a deep structural problem with our economy right now in that it's been taking away a lot of agency. It's been really harming rural areas, which have this disproportionate political power. And we've stopped thinking of the economy as connected to our democracy at all, whereas the founding fathers and so on thought very much in Aristotle about how economics needed to support democratic systems and that you really needed to have the ability to be a thinker and not just be educated, but have sort of the independence to make your own political decisions. But you also needed to learn the kind of habits of heart of being an independent thinker from your economic world, which is why Jefferson was so into yeoman farmers who kind of did everything for themselves. We've lost that kind of thinking altogether. And so one could imagine more investment and the Hewlett Foundation is doing this to some extent and Omidyar is doing a little bit on what would an economy look like that supported our democracy that wasn't so winner take all to California and New York that enabled people to be more independent and have the time to be free thinkers and so on. That's very different from just economic redistribution. It's not independent of that conversation. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Another area I just want to highlight is masculinity. We have reams of research suggesting that men in this country are really falling behind. They're falling behind in their college outcomes. White men aren't even trying to compete in college anymore. They're just saying that they're choosing not to. We see that the white working class is dying disproportionately of opioids and suicide and these diseases of despair, alcoholism, so much so that their life expectancy was lowering even before COVID, which is, I think, never happened in a developed country. And men particularly seem to be having real trouble in this new world, and it's limiting their sexual prospects, it's limiting their marriage prospects, it's causing a whole lot of trouble. Well, you get a backlash when you have a lot of men, particularly a lot of young men, experiencing this kind of failure to compete. We know that that causes trouble. And it used to be that we had some positive religious movements that tried to do something with young men, you know, say what you will about abstinence, but Promise Keepers was not anti-woman. It was a pro-abstinence evangelical movement. But since about 2000, we've had some very anti-woman movements starting up that are courting young men from movements within evangelical Christianity that are really about kind of male leadership and male control over women to things like the incel movement that are really about sort of allowing a rape culture and a violent culture because somehow men are owed that. These are all indicative of a real problem with masculinity. I am not the person to come up with a good policy about what to do, but someone is. And we need a movement that talks to men in this country. When I worked internationally in development and we tried to help women with small loans and so on in India, you always work with the men as well as the women. In international development, it's well known that you cannot run a women's empowerment program without also empowering men. Otherwise, you get a backlash. In America, we've been running these women's empowerment programs since Title IX with really no thought to what does it do to the male half of the country, and we're getting a backlash. And we see that with political violence, actually. It's the number one predictor more than racism is gender hostility. And so we need to do something about our men and people who work with young men, who work with college-age men, you know, sports teams and programs that are religious and programs that are about helping men find their way through college. All of these things need to really be rethinking, how do we help men compete? And just a shout out here, Richard Reeves has a, an interesting book on that particular topic. And we had a great conversation on this podcast a couple of months ago about these issues. So if you're interested in that, 
go back and listen to the conversation with Richard. Richard, you brought up international development, and this is something that's not, of course, of interest to you. You, in many ways, started out your career by thinking about political violence internationally, and you're really much more of a scholar of democracy around the world than you are of American democracy, and you've sort of turned yourself into a scholar of American democracy when you saw many of the themes you've been working on for a long time internationally become very urgently relevant in the United States. So I want to ask you about the prospect of political violence. There's been a lot of talk over the course of the last year of an impending civil war, and I take it that you're quite skeptical of the idea that we will, in the kind of sense in which lay people understand the term civil war, have anything resembling a civil war. And yet you are concerned about the role that political violence is already playing in America and may play in the years to come. So talk us through this, sort of what are the reasons to be concerned about political violence in the United States? And why is that sort of hyperbolic language of an impending civil war nevertheless misleading? Sure. America has always allowed a lot more violence of all sorts, political and otherwise, than our peer democracies. We have, you know, five times the murder rate at the best of times to Europe, and um, right now is not the best of times. And we have allowed political violence from the Know Nothing Party to lynchings in the South, the redemption era that allowed parties to come back in the 1860s and 70s by lynching their way into Congress. So we have a long history of this, and we know internationally that if you have a history, you're more at risk of repeating it. We also know that there has never been a civil war in a country that has a strong democracy with strong institutions, particularly a strong military and security institutions. And that's because Civil war is not really about the feelings that are in people's hearts, how much they hate each other, how polarized they are. So all of that matters. We know that factionalized countries, countries in which political party lines up with other identities, which in America does, your gender identity or racial identity or your geographic identity are 12 times more likely to have a civil war. Just in that point, Rachel, but much less than in other countries, right? In many countries in Africa, knowing what tribe you're from is going to give me a 1995 and someplace perhaps 98% likelihood of knowing which political party you're voting for and which side of some political conflict you're going to be on, right? In the United States, the most extreme case is African-Americans who, for very obvious historical reasons, are much more likely to vote for the Democratic Party. And there perhaps we are, depending on the election, approaching 90%, 85%. But with the exception of that group, you know, knowing that you're white, knowing that you're a man, knowing that you're a Christian tells us much, much, much less about which side of a political dividing line you're going to stand on than it does in many other democracies in the world, right? Yes, mostly. Although I think that African-American voting is a problem. The geographic is becoming a bigger one, rural versus urban, and how clear that line is. So yes, you're generally right, but there are a couple of areas in which it's worth worrying. All of that said, those kinds of issues are all mediated by the state. And if you have a strong state, it's much harder to take out through violence. And so you just don't see it. And you also need a brutal state, generally, a state that really reacts with a lot of violence or is very corrupt. We don't have that state structure in America. Say what you will about the level of violence in our criminal justice system and the corruption in the system. It is nothing like Ghana, where I've worked in, where multiple coups happened with, you know, five or six people and a small group behind them because they could take down the state that way. You can't take down our country that way. So I'm not worried about that kind of civil war. I am very worried about targeted political violence, and I write about it a lot, because when you look at what's happening 
lately, what you're seeing is three strategies being used, and they're strategies, they're purposeful. One is that um, intimidation, not so much actual violence, but a lot of threat and intimidation is targeting election workers. And not all election workers. In 2020, when it really broke through the roof, we'd never had this kind of targeting before. It was in swing states where Trump was trying to target you know, it's very clear. We're also seeing targeting of Republicans who are pro-democratic. So whether this is the Maricopa County supervisor or the Republicans who voted for impeachment, somebody like Liz Cheney on the January 6th committee, Republicans who are standing for a pro-democratic Republican party are a threat to the anti-democratic faction. And they're getting a lot of pressure, a lot of intimidation, a lot of threat. And that's, you know, you see that in every country where one faction is trying to take over a political party is that they go after their own side first. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And then what we're seeing is this othering to build a base. There's a long history of doing this because while a lot of people see violence and they recoil, other people see violence and they say, oh, we're allowed to do that. I didn't know that we were allowed to do that. Now I'm more excited to do that. And so every time you see, you know, something like the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, you actually see an increase in people searching for how do I donate to the KKK or, or other kind of horrible search terms. So, you know, that kind of base building through othering and dehumanization is allowing a lot of spillover violence. And we're seeing all three of those in America. You don't need a civil war to try to take over a party with violence. And you don't need a civil war to try to build your base with violence, but that doesn't make it okay or positive or good. And the sort of insurgency activity that we might see if people lose and want to unleash forces of intimidation against parts of the state could also be supplemented by the state. And this is an area that I'm particularly starting to worry about now in Florida. You know, overseas, most political violence is, is by incumbents who are using the state to use state violence to, to hold on to power. And what we saw in Florida was the creation of a policing entity around voting and then the arrest of 20 people, mostly African-American, for voting violations in these very public and ugly ways. That's not violence in the way that we think about it in terms of someone coming out and shooting you in a vigilante action. But being incarcerated is a form of state violence. And if you start worrying that the state will imprison you for small voting violations that you may not be aware you committed, that has a suppressive effect. And we might see the spread of things like that, which, of course, we have a history of from the Jim Crow South. When we see the 2020 election, there obviously was significant political violence afterwards, most obviously in the form of January 6th. The 2022 election does not seem to have had comparable political violence, despite some warnings, but that would turn out to be the case. What explains the difference? Is it just the lower stakes of a midterm election relative to a presidential election? Is it the fact that the role of Donald Trump was much smaller because he wasn't on the ballot, because he wasn't trying to extend his term in office despite losing the election? Is it that sort of a country has woken up to some of these dangers and has taken preventive mechanisms? You know, as often the, the causal question here is motivated by a predictive question, which is to say, should we take the 2022 election as an indication that the danger has somewhat lessened? Or do you think that those specific things about this midterm election, which are not going to be the case in 2024, and depending on who's on the Republican ballot and what kind of rhetoric we're going to engage in come November 2024, January 2025, we might see a rerun of 2020 or perhaps something that's worse than what we experienced two years ago. 
So I don't think we're in for a rerun of 2020 because Trump will be out of office, not in office. And that's a fundamentally different positionality. But I don't think that we can take 2022 and let down our guard. I think, you know, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was writing about the reduction of the Voting Rights Act, she wrote that you shouldn't throw away your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm just because you're not getting wet. And I think we're in a very similar position right now. I think some of the things that you said, you know, Trump has a unique ability to call on his followers for violence. First of all, he has this unique relationship with his followers. He's also built up ties to violence groups since 2016 or maybe even before. Those ties are pretty deep. The January 6th committee didn't do a lot of exploration for reasons I don't understand. But his campaign has built up ties with Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, but also with state-level violence groups. And he can call on these violence kind of provocateurs in a way that other leaders can't. He also has a ton of money to give them and to support them with, which a lot of the other election deniers just didn't have this time around. Midterms are just more sleepy generally than a presidential. You know, you're not going to have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who won her election, of course, saying to her followers, hey, get on a bus and go to Arizona. It's really far away from Georgia. And it takes a long time <laughs> to get to one place and you don't know the outcome of the election yet. So it's just harder to mobilize around a midterm than national. But there was also just immense work done that was really behind the scenes. Groups that got hotspots together and said, okay, let's make sure that the election supervisor knows the chief of police, that they've got protocols in place for action. And things happened that in 2020 really threw us, you know, armed groups deciding to protest or armed convoys of cars coming into a place. And they didn't even make the news this time because they were handled and they were handled because people had prepared for years. They had I mean, literally for years, they had been working for two years to deal with these things, to figure out how to diffuse them and de-escalate them. And there were people watching and people putting the muscle memory of how to act because they'd been acting for two years to work that day. And so I think we're probably in for more in 2024. I'm particularly concerned about the primary season because this election, we actually saw more intimidation. And while intimidation is not violence, it's not not violence. Obviously, it's worse to be shot than to have a nasty email come in. But enough nasty emails coming in can really cause people to leave their jobs if there's someone like an election official. They can mean that you just don't even want to run for your school board because why bother? You know, school board is not a real lucrative or fancy position. And why have your family get threatened in their home? And there's a lot of property violence that doesn't make the news. You know, a brick through someone's window is really scary. If you're at home watching TV with your kids, it doesn't matter that nothing really happened. So what we saw during the primary was an awful lot of intimidation, as I said, often against Republicans, but also often spillovers from these very violent ads that Republicans were making during the primary to appeal to their base. And you can imagine in 2024, during the primary in which Trump is running, some real ugliness that is ginned up, connections to these violent provocateur groups, and kind of a replay in the primary that might not happen in the general, and we'll need to be ready for that. You know, I think you have a curse of being a compelling speaker who makes people feel a little bit depressed about the world, but you're not a fatalist and certainly not a cynic. You know, what gives you hope if 20, 30 years from now, we would write the story of this moment and, you know, the ending is a happy one. If from the vantage point of, of you know, 2050, let's say, we look back at this moment and say, you know, in the end, things somehow turned out to be okay. What's the storyline? What is it that will have happened in those intervening years? Which of the positive developments that perhaps are already in place would end up amping up or dominating in such a way that 
we come to that positive conclusion. You know, I do write about depressing things, but I'm uh, not at all depressed. I'm actually pretty excited about this moment. And I guess that's because at core, I've spent the last 10, 15 years working on social change within democracies. How do you get social change within democracies for major change? And it does not happen in a linear fashion. It happens at crisis points and it happens when people come together across polarized constituencies to come up with a way kind of around the polarization rather than through it, where they reframe old problems that had gotten old and stale in fundamentally new ways and push forward. And we've had that in various parts of American history where the kind of corruption and violence of the Gilded Age moved into the progressive era where the kind of white Christian assumptions of the progressive era gave way to a broader America in the latter half of the 20th century. And I think, frankly, America had gotten a little bit stale and self-regarding over the last couple of decades, and we had not been pushing our democracy forward. People hadn't really cared about it. We'd really taken it for granted after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we'd been weakening our powers, but also not paying a lot of attention to what had been going on at home. And I feel like what's happened now, thanks to crisis, is that we have this robust infrastructure of pro-democracy activists. We have people who are white recognizing what African-Americans have been saying for a long time about some of the problems in our democracy and starting to come to some common cause. We have a lot more new energy from the business community, from other pillars that really had never cared or been there before. It just, you know, it was the water the fish swam in and they didn't really think much about it. And so I feel like we're at a moment in which we can do one of these lurches forward that our country does once in a while, and we really need it. And it took this crisis to get us there. It's not inevitable. It takes human agency to, to make it happen, but I think it can happen. Well, Rachel, thank you for all your important work and thank you for leaving us on this very optimistic, hopeful ending. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.